Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everybody to season three, episode six of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast, Sponsor Finance and Middle Market Lending. And you know if we're talking banking, who's gonna be joining me behind the microphone today. This is a pretty heady episode. There are a lot of things happening that we're gonna share with you probably involve a little bit of prognostication for the next three to six to 12 months to come. Suffice to say, it's a note-taking episode. So get your pad and pen ready for another cup of that wonderful meal of coffee. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Welcome everybody once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports, and as I teased in the introduction, I'm going to be joined behind the microphones today by my partner, none other than DeWalker Sinha. DeWalker, you want to say hello to everybody? Uh, good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. We are highly motivated, very caffeinated, and on point today. We are going to be talking lending finance. We're going to be talking rates. We're going to prognosticate about some things that will probably unfold in the coming three to 12 months. And while that sounds like a long way away, it's not. And there's definitely a lot that you want to think about today to get your house in order to be ready for some of that. And I, I think we're going to start today's episode um, maybe as we normally do uh, with some numbers and some metrics. Um, it, I feel like when we record, <clears throat> excuse me, a podcast every week or once we talk about banking, at least, you know, between every episode, rates change, right? So, you know, we two of the benchmark rates that we look to are five-year treasury and the federal funds rate. Uh, and as of this recording, the end of January, um, five-year uh, uh, five treasury uh, rate is about 3.7%. And about five years ago, it's about 2.4%. So I, I know for those of you who are on a treadmill or driving your car or what have you, it's tough to, to follow numbers audibly. But um, the five-year treasury rate's up about a point, um, you know, 1.3 points, 130 basis points. Federal funds rate, on the other hand, about 4.3% now, and summer of 2019, it was about 2.4%. So almost 200 basis point uh, increase over that period of time. So everybody reads the wires, everybody listens to the news, everybody knows uh, that rates are going up. So DeWalker, why don't we just start with the rising rate environment and some general commentary from you around what's happening, what we think is going to gonna maybe continue to happen uh, in the coming quarters, uh, and how to think about some of that before we dive into s some more complicated issues here. Uh, sure. Um, and again, thanks everyone for joining us today. So I think when we kind of in the last five, three to five months, we've been having these conversations about cost of capital and how that's pricing is continuing to improve. And you know, one lens could be it's raising the alarm bells. Uh, for, for us, it's 
kind of just being accepting of the change that's about to come, you know, and I think, uh, you know, our, our communication is always looking at three to six months out or a year out um, for our audience members to kind of think about, you know, how, how do we prepare the decisions we take today to embrace the change that's going to happen in three to six months and, and be best positioned to take action in that market. And I think, uh, um, you know, hopefully we've provided our audience member with that, with that guidance going into it. So, you know, with that, um, you know, we've been, we've been talking about capital markets having impacts into the, uh, um, the, the, the larger ticket space and transactional space. We've talked about some level of contraction in transactional workflow. I think, you know, uh, uh, you know, a few podcasts ago, we, you know, we had, uh, um, um, Steve Mizrak with us, Brian Clay with us. They're talking about the transactional flow slowing up. Uh, we've been talking to a lot of, uh, larger, you know, big four accounting firms and, and different people in the space and transaction flow is down maturely going into Q1 2022, um, up and down the spectrum and, and, uh, kind of restates some of the things that have happened or maybe causing cause and effect, um, or the effect we're seeing the cause that that's happening is the change in pricing out there. So I think you, you, know, you kind of alluded to the five-year treasury being uh, just about 3.7% and 2.38, 2.4% five years ago at the same time. And the Fed funds rate is about 4.3% now compared to 2.4% uh, uh, the summer of 2019. You know, you look at the SOFR index, um, uh, which stands for Secured Overnight Finance Rate, it's up to roughly about 4.3% currently as at the end of January. Um, and that's maturely up from the 2020 uh, pre-COVID to, uh, and then definitely maturely uh, uh, up from after COVID, uh, uh, going into COVID the summer of 2020. Um, so all these things are, you know, the way I look at them is are uh, giving us uh, the, you know, connected, the connectivity between all these indexes of how pricing is moving up. Uh, and the effect is, again, we've seen, you know, larger ticket transactions, uh, Brian Kaleo talked about one of our podcasts that he had a, saw a billion dollar transaction last year, n- not consummate. Uh, you know, we've seen other uh, larger DSOs uh, try to go to market and potentially put pause on it uh, just because of capital structures that are going to impact valuation, you know, on a, you know, $1, 2000000000 billion organization. If I remember correctly, in one of the podcasts we actually use as a mathematical example uh, to kind of talk about how pricing indexes are influencing valuation. Uh, and we're seeing that aspect come down the spectrum um, into how deals are being evaluated. Uh, we talked about in our sell side series of how you know we're able to understand the the capital structures, a lot of these uh, sponsor finance and and private equity firms to kind of you know provide guidance on how to structure it differently um, to allow for a creative structure in valuation and and kind of be able to because we can put the lens, not only of our client, you know, which we're representing through the process, but you know, because of the ex- ex- extensive bench of bankers we have here at Polaris, um, that we can put our put our hat on as a banker, as a credit senior lender, middle market lender, banker, uh, of what might be the covenants these bigger uh, strategics are going through to help structure those deals uh, that are equitable to them from their lens, from a, from a capital markets position, and from our lens. So. I think as we go into 2023, um, you know, you, you, we're going to see some level of uh, uh, banks start to, you know, have contraction. The lending processes, um, you know, a lot of it due to, you know, how pricing indexes are flowing. 
how securitization is flowing. Uh, well, you know, I, I hopefully we get later on to talk about impact of balance sheets and banks and how the banks have to recapitalize their position, how Fed funds rate is going to impact, how securitization is going to be impacted. But as we go into 2023, uh, our, you know, more and more activity, uh, I, I think clients that have good credit structures, good capital market structure, and I know, and I don't know the exact percentages, parent, but I know from our conversations and the feedback we get from our audience members that, you know, let's say about 70% of our audience members are emerging and middle market healthcare groups. And what I've heard from our conversation is that the other 20 to 30% are actually, you know, uh, group practices that are private equity backed that, you know, do listen to our content and are seeing how the market's changed. So we're very appreciative of that um, um, audience member also participating and listening into our podcast and our blog series and our YouTube. Um, I think, uh, you know, so today's podcast is kind of going to be addressing both ends of the spectrum. Um, as we start to see more of our audience member being from our private equity platforms, I think we're going to talk a little bit about sponsor finance today. And then, you know, as we also talk about, you know, lower middle market to middle market lending, you know, and lower, just to kind of, kind of uh, uh, bifurcate a little bit, I mean, Sponsor finance, typically going to start to see around 50 to $100 million in check sizes. Uh, typically, again, the check sizes can be below that, but typically start to see those kind of check sizes, 50 to 100 million. And lower middle market to middle market, you, know, you start around three to 5 million, which you've kind of talked about. And then true middle market starts in around 20, 25 million check sizes. And if it's not sponsor backed or private equity backed, I mean, those check sizes could be 200, 250 million, $500 million into, into institutional lending level uh, check sizes also. So anyway, I'll kind of pause there, kind of uh, ho hopefully kind of give our audience members to kind of think about the podcast, going to be a broader reach explaining the markets, market conditions today. Yeah, um, good, good uh, dissertation there, um, top to bottom. Let, so let's, um, we need to break this down for the audience uh, uh, in, in a couple of chunks. All right. So um, let's first start with, you know, the balance sheet context, uh, and, and specifically, um, you know, how banks approach that and some of the, uh, the challenges of operating a bank, um, over the last handful of years and, and up to present day, because the way banks operate, um, and securitize their, their loan portfolios has a direct impact on everyone in this audience, be they emerging groups or enterprise level groups. And after we talk through balance sheets on banks, then then let's maybe break it down into those segments of the audience, um, and, and we can uh, we can dive into that kind of sequentially as well. So let's let's first go conceptually, uh, and I mean you've obviously worked for a number of enterprise level banks and led one in a prior life at your last tour of duty. So give our audience to Walker, a, um, you know the balance sheet context of the way banking operates and how rates can impact that balance sheet. Um, uh, and, and ultimately, that impact flows through to the to the uh, consumer. Sure. So I think I want to kind of go back to the 2008. I think people talk about eight. I focus as a banker about nine because the you know the the economic conditions deteriorated in 2008, and the impact of that for banks was really 2009 and on. Uh, and what that taught uh, institutions is to how to not be over levered, right? You know, Dodd-Frank came into play around that time. You know, we 
uh, additional testing as far as stress testing for banks came into play or capital structure where they been a capitalized things like that. And I think I just want to start off by saying we are definitely not in the same economic condition from my lens um, as we were in 2008, 2009. You know, banks are not over levered to some of the practices that are happening then. I think we have good controls in space. And I think overall banks are good actors in place and trying to, um, you know, think ahead in, in their capital structure themselves to make sure they're not in a tough position. And so the, how banks tend to recapitalize their balance sheet are, are going to be fewfold. One is creating deposit relationships. So if any of you have gone to, gotten a loan in the past, um, you know, in any of the capital structures, you might see, you know, a covenant from the bank that says you must maintain your banking relationship or operating account. Um, and essentially what they're trying to do is make sure all the operating revenue, at least if not um, stays with the bank. And that allows them to, uh, you know, and they might have covenants that says minimum operating cash balance of 2 million or 10 million or 30 million. Um, and that's based on the size of the exposure they have uh, and how they're trying to uh, assume that the bank needs to have uh, or the uh, client needs to have operating in their account to to uh, address any down markets in in that pra- in that business. So one is creating deposit relationships. The, you know that's and then you know you know banks are doing a very aggressive job to say hey we're offering it. I think you know I see uh, commercials on TV online that talk about hey our yield our annual percentage yield APY is this in our savings account our CD in our checking accounts. You know so there's definitely a marketing push from banks to get deposits into the bank and provide good yield returns for it. That's one. Um, the other way is, you know, for the banks to potentially go to the uh, uh, Fed reserves and uh, utilize their Fed funds rate, right? The borrowing rate that the banks have to secure capital from the federal government. So that's another way to to secure capital. And again, that costs some level of capital. Um, and that, you know, again, the Fed's funds rates right now is 4.3%, right? So, but if they lend out, they borrow paper at 4.3%, that does impact their ability to be competitive in the market because the best way to minimize your cost of capital is actually to create deposit accounts where you're providing a yield of 0.2, 0.5, versus having to go to the Federal Reserves and borrow 4.3%. So that's, I want to kind of take a moment and just uh, talk about the initiatives from how banks may be looking at creating their, their cash and balance. Other other ways of cash and balance that are being going to be created is obviously just int- revenue incomes that they get. I mean, a bank is a business that creates interest income um, and off the interest income and how they might have net income left and how they reallocate net income. One could be in the form of uh, diluted earnings per share on a public traded company um, and or just keeping cash on on balance and not having any distribution. Uh, based on you know any forecast of default rates, uh, we did see coming into 2023, banks put a lot more cash reserves into forecasted default rates uh, into 2023, understanding that pricing is going to go up and it's going to impact some level of defaults as the economy starts to slow down a little bit. Uh, we are seeing impacts of that in inflation being uh, brought down to some levels. Um, and, and having some impact of that. And maybe this process hopefully will give a soft landing for all. And by end of Q1 to end of Q2, we'll see this kind of hopefully bottom out and then kind of slowly get back to a resurgence in the economy. So um, hopefully we see those those activities. Uh, another way to do it, to create cash on balance sheet for a, uh, a institution is to securitize paper and get either a gain on sale 
out there. So, and what that means is it kind of walk you through securitization. Um, this happens significant in, in sponsor finance capital markets, um, in these middle market deals, um, and by banks, non, especially by non-bank lenders. So a lot of these bigger DSOs uh, that might be looking at capital structure, they're going to non-bank lenders. And, and when we take our clients to middle market solutions, we take them to both. We take them to non-bank lenders and bank lenders. And through that process, you know, uh, determine what the best solution for the client is. But a lot of these bigger institutions that are looking for a more higher lever paper, a more creative financing, end up with a non-bank lender because those covenants be it end up being more attractive for growth. Pricing may be higher, but Again, we've talked about this in our podcast before. You kind of have to, you know, weigh pricing with flexibility and the ability to execute on those transactions. So, in the capital markets position, uh, uh, and we start looking at securitization. What happens is, you know, let's say you have a hundred million dollar paper um, that you have priced out at six percent, and um, you get a a buy rate in the market of that paper at four percent. Um, and I'm not going to go into servicing rights and all these different ways institutions may make money. But in that case, you have a spread up between 4% and 6%. Um, and depending on the average yield of that portfolio, if it's seven years, 10 years, five years, uh, there's a pricing that's calculated when they do present value of the loan. Um, and if you guys don't understand what present value, I'm not going to talk about this in the call, but you know, uh, we can walk you guys through how present value is calculated and how to, how to look at those things. But that you know, present value on an average hundred million dollar portfolio, let's say, is about um, um, six points. Uh, and six points, you know, you might be saying, well, the rate rate difference is two percent. How is the pricing six points? Well, call us, we'll explain it. Um, but that six points now, and that hundred million dollars allows me to offload hundred million dollars in debt, recapitalize my balance sheet, okay, and I make six million dollars in income. It's called the gain on sale on present value. Okay, so then now the banks are able to get their hundred million dollars back that they lent out, and on top of that, based on the securitization market, they make six million dollars in fee income. Well, what's what happened is if you start to go back to two thousand, you know, eighteen, nineteen, you know, the pricing conditions around nineteen were peaking out around two point four percent, you know, um, uh, on, on on that right. So if you start looking at 2.4%, then you start to go into 2020, where the FUD funds rate was 0.1 or 0.05 or 0.15%, depending on when you started to enter the capital markets. All those transactions that were made in 2017 to 19, almost almost going into 2020, were priced at a higher position. And when the Fed funds rate dropped out, they had a very attractive aspect of getting into capital markets because you could securitize in the secondary market, get your cash and balance sheet. Well, that same logic competes against you uh, if you go in from 2020 to 2023 now. So we went in from you know beginning of COVID around a 0.05 or 0.1% Fed funds rate, you know, all the way to you know now where the Fed funds rate is 4.3%. Well, if you borrowed capital and you were 200 basis points or 300 basis points above the Fed's funds rate, so let's say your rate was 3.1%. Well, that's if you're trying to securitize in the market today, that's below the Fed funds rate today. So now banks are having a tough time unloading, or non-bank lenders having a tough time unloading the, the loan assets they originated during the COVID years. So if you have a bank that you know, has an amazing balance sheet, they were proactive in thinking about it, and there are some banks that are positioned that, well, uh, that way, then they're in a good position. I think those banks will be very competitive going into the next two to three years. 
But now, majority of banks were in big origination mode. They're in a very hyper uh, price competitive market. You know, we saw pricings in the high twos, low threes in that spectrum. Um, and that's going to you know, impede those banks' ability to offload that debt. And what's what's going to happen there is as those banks are not able to offload their debt, they have to now either borrow money from the Fed, uh, from the federal government or increase their deposit relationships. And for the non-bank lenders, they have to go out and secure additional capital from newer sources and warehouse facilities or equity from companies to be able to redeploy, right? So there's significant balance sheet pressure as we go into 2023 for uh, sponsor finance and for uh, traditional banks. And sponsor finance is going to be non-bank lenders traditionally. I'm not saying there's not bank lenders that can be in that space. And there are banks that are in the sponsor finance space. You know, we're working in, in, on, on some of those deals. Uh, but uh, there's also, uh, um, you know, traditional bank lender banks that are looking at their cash on balance and saying, okay, you know, how are we well positioned? What is the growth trajectory we have to uh, create deposits on over the next 12, 24, 36 months to be able to continue to be at our leverage ratio that's been mandated to us by the FDIC to not create the economic crisis of 2009 through 11? Again, I go through 9 through 11, not 8 to 10, because the, the cause was around 7 to 8. The effect of it was 9 through 11. Um, and so I, I focus more on the effect. And I think the, the cause has already been this, this uh, rapid pricing increase. The effect is going to be how banks have to react to it in 2023. So upon a pause there, I know a lot of it was said, but again, if you want to calculate how present value is calculated or any of these things, you know, call us and we can kind of walk you through it. Yeah, great. I mean, uh, obviously deep industry insight from you having lived, um, you know, that role for the better part of 20 years prior to Polaris. Um, but I think it's unbelievably invaluable right now and and fortuitously enough, at least for, for us at Polaris, uh, you know, we do a lot with banking, debt recapitalization, guidance line, and, and things that our, our audience has heard us talk about a good bit. Let's let's take just a quick, I don't know, pause or maybe a, a departure uh, and, and talk a little bit about um, enterprise level DSOs, private equity backed groups. You touched on this earlier, um, but, you know, we we interact with those groups a, a halfway decent amount, especially in the when we're representing a, um, a client in the sell side market. So we know a lot of the people in the business development offices that are wanting to grow their businesses. They're in a they're in a, a a bit of a pickle right now. A lot of the enterprise level DSOs, almost all of the enterprise level DSOs that are private equity backed are, are using some type of debt leverage to get deals done. And most of the time that's in an interest only loan provision uh, scenario. We've probably had more conversations with enterprise level DSOs recently, um, not about acquisitions and acquiring groups that we represent, but a little bit of guidance, insight, and potentially help uh, in a in a debt restructure offering. Do you want to maybe hit some of the highlights on some of the conversations you've had with those people, and and you know uh, tell a little bit more of the story around the work we can do in a segment of the market that we don't typically talk about that much? Uh, sure. Yeah. So I think um, as we the last six months, you know, over here at Polaris for us, we've started to see as we kind of expand our, our market presence, um, you know, as you stated, you know, we obviously work with um, with a lot of DSOs and private equity firms directly in some cases where we're representing a sell side client to engage them. 
um, as the capital markets are uh, uh, getting uh, more and more challenging for the larger ticket size, you know, we're starting to see calls from private equity firms, uh, large strategics to say, okay, you know, we have a capital structure or de uh, deployed of 50 million, $250 million. Here's where our challenges lie with our current capital partner. What solutions are available out there? Um, and and this is how it's impacting our ability to acquire. So we, we've been talking about it in Q4, and now I guess you guys can kind of see a little behind the scenes um, conversations. We have said, you know, pricing conditions will impact how people buy. Um, and and we, we, we continue to say that because, you know, in our conversations, we are seeing some of these firms talk about that as a, as a big challenge for them because they believe in some of the partners they've acquired. They made some business plan decisions to go into markets that they felt were, you know, catalyst to kind of do additional transactions they want to do in that market. And, and now there's somewhat of a pause in some markets because of, how pricing conditions are happening. So let, let's talk about what are they experiencing. So if you if you're a, in a private equity firm or private equity backed DSO, you may be experiencing where you know you know a lot of these capital structures are variable rate products. So they were tied to SOFR, Treasury, LIBOR, some variable index, and it might be 300, 400 basis points above certain index or 700 basis points above certain indexes. Um, and that index depends on your capital partner. And so, when you if you borrowed a a a acquired a practice for two million or five million dollars uh, deployment, and that's just the cash of closing. That's not doesn't talk about rollover equity or any of those things. Well, that cost of capital, you know, two years ago, you know, might have been one percent, one and a half percent. And you know, during that two thousand twenty one to even early twenty twenty two, you might have deployed fifty hundred million dollars into that. But now, all those transactions you wrote checks for. Pricings, you know, moved up about 250, 300 basis points at minimum, not higher, depending on the index um, that was used to calculate that transaction. So now that hundred million dollars in deployed capital um, is costing an extra three million dollars, okay, uh, at minimum. Or if we just look at that one transaction you acquired for two million dollars, it's that one transaction for two million dollars is costing an extra sixty thousand dollars in interest. And that practice that you acquired for two million might be enterprise value of let's say three million. The revenue of that practice might have been two million dollars. The EBITDA on that business might be four hundred thousand dollars, and it's costing you an extra sixty thousand dollars in interest on that acquisition. And the EBITDA was just about four hundred thousand. Again, that was twenty percent on the two million dollars. And most of these practices are on fifteen percent. Let's talk about an ideal twenty percent. Well, that allow that puts significant uh, cash flow compression, right? Um, just an interest only. Even if your capital structure said interest only deals for um, for, for the three or five year term that your relationships with, so that's causing significant pressure, practice by practice, and a consolidated relationship across the platform. So a lot of these institutions are saying, okay, how can we go in? We know pr whatever pricing we move to now is going to be the same or greater than our today, and how can we transition into a lending relationship? that is gonna understand the pricing compression we're in, um, allow us to continue to aggregate or you know, find new partners in the space as we deleverage ourselves to organic growth and process improvements in those practices. So we're definitely seeing those calls, you know, starting to uh, um, uh, look at those new relationships where we're moving, not only we're providing for our group practices, we're gonna talk about those, the five to 25, $50 million space, but we're actually starting to see activity 
in the, you know, let's call it 75 million to $250 million space where, you know, enterprise level DSOs are looking at their capital structure and saying, okay, now how can we make this, how can we make this situation better? And how can we position our capital structure better going into 2024 um, uh, as we look at where we are? Again, our process, when we look at new capital structures, especially for sponsor finance, um, is going to be about nine months of an average process. So, um, you know, I think those are things that are going to be, um, you know, uh, front of mind for a lot of bigger DSOs, that the bigger DSOs are having tough time executing the transaction. Um, you know, absolutely, please reach out to us. We're happy to have these conversations and what that may look like for you. Interesting um, uh, points on the the top end of the food chain and not something that we talk too much about. But uh, since we're on the subject of banking, it's interesting to kind of compare and contrast how a rising rate environment impacts you know, enterprise level DSOs that are private equity backed um, just as much, possibly even more than uh, the emerging market space impacts them differently for sure. Um, but uh, all too often, the emerging space tends to think that, well, if you have private equity backing, you're you're immune uh, from the laws of economics um, and, and rates. And, and truth is, you're really not. So let's uh, let's pivot and move uh, downstream a little bit more into that emerging group space, middle market space, doctor founded, debt funded space, whatever we want to call it, which is our, our target audience. Now, you know, you mentioned um the the ability to offload paper um you know in, in a rising rate environment when the paper is priced uh as low as it has been the last uh couple of years that that makes it really really challenging uh for banks to offload that to make matters arguably a little bit worse uh, in the emerging market space is uh possible uh, a, a bank's possible reluctance to continue lending at those pre-defined um, uh, interest rates uh, because they're actually exacerbating the problem, making things worse um, uh, as they move forward doing that. So let's maybe, let's think about emerging market groups and DSOs um, and how they may be staring down, uh, you know, possibly running out of acquisition capital or growth capital uh, in the coming months or quarters versus that committed uh, guidance facility that we talk about most often. Do you want to you want to sort of take those two apart and uh, compare and contrast for us? Sure. So I think uh, you know any any emerging group that uh, secured financing in the last two years. I, I think uh, one of the things you you have to process and at some point accept. Um, you don't have to accept today as you're listening to our podcast, but at some point you do, is that cost of capital is going up. And if if and when uh, you decide to transition away from your lending relationship, um, you're going to go into a higher pricing product. Um, I think that's good uh, to, to accept that as you're giving us a call. If not, we're happy to educate why that is going to be there and kind of address your individual situation and you know how that may impact you in a positive and short-term potentially negative way if you look at cash flow concerns that might be there. Um, when you get past that, I do want to take a moment and pause. So there's, you know, you're going to be subject to some kind of a prepayment penalty. So, and we've talked about that and and on our podcasts, you know, over and over again. And we're against prepayment penalties uh, that that are going to be overly cumbersome. And again, there's going to be some level of prepayment penalty. I think how you structure it matters. Um, so if you have a prepayment penalty where you're paying in like five percent, four percent, three percent, that is what it is. And you know, we have to work through that economics to see how that impacts your 
forward-looking plans on it. But I do want to slow down and talk about if in the last 36 months, you took out a swap rate products, or if your prepayment penalty says yield maintenance, um, essentially it should be a swap rate products and let us look at it and we can evaluate those things. Then in most cases, the banks will actually pay you to leave, right? I mean, instead of you paying the bank, you may be subjected to receiving money from the bank to leave the relationship, okay? And why is that? So it kind of go back into securitization. So what the bank would have done if you took a yield maintenance product is they actually securitized internally or externally your paper and tied it to a swap uh, uh, product where some note needed some level of return, okay? So now let's say you secured a product in 2020 and the pricing was 3% with some bank, 3.5%. Well, now they can take that swap product and sell it now in the market for 6 7%. Well, your rate was three, and now they could sell it for six, seven. So if, if you have a yield maintenance swap rate products, the bank may owe you that extra 3% delta that they would get in the market today for the remainder of your contract with the lending relationship. Now, if you go in a down market where the pricing's down, going down, that could hurt you to leave the relationship by millions of dollars. In an up rate market, that, you could make millions of dollars um, depending on how that works, right? So... Um, I think it's important to understand, depending on lending exposure, I don't want to say everyone's getting a million dollars. If you have five, $15 million in lending exposure, you took a swap rate product in 2020 to 2022, uh, you, you're gonna, you maybe do a significant capital when you exit. So, so what that would do is, let's say you owe the bank $10 million. You're after prepayment and the yields spread, spread credit, you might have a balance of $9 million. But it actually might work out in your favor. I just want to make sure. The principal balance might be $10 million. In a yield maintenance product, after the bank pays you some fund, you know, uh, towards leaving the relationship, you might owe 9.59 million, 8 million, depending on the capital structure and the remaining term of the transaction. That's important to understand that 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 could be very meaningful, and that should aid in your decision to kind of think about should I leave or not. Now we move forward. You know, how is balance sheets going to impact your ability and 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 things to think about? Well, um, you know, if you don't have a guidance facility, and we, we talk about this over and over in our podcast, you know, you're having to apply for each transaction every time you need something, okay? And you're, in most cases, going to hear from your lending institution, hey, we're ready, we're here with you, we want to be your partner, we want to be your lend, lending institution. And you know what, their goal might be that, because I think, you know, again, we talked about how banks make money, banks make money when they deploy capital. But all these capital structures behind the scenes, will impact how a bank lends to you and how covenants, what kind of covenants they put in place. So you are going to be subjected to leaving these institutions if you cannot execute on your transaction in time and covenants going forward. And you will, you may be receiving new covenants as you go into 2023 that the banks haven't addressed based on a capital structure. And one might be a bank may come to you. They might've done the last 10 deals with you at hundred percent financing and moving forward, the bank may say, Hey, we're still with you on this last $2 million deal, but we need you to put in $200,000 or $400,000 into the deal. And why would they have said that? Well, typically a bank has to have 10 to 20% equity into a deal on their own. Okay. So even if the bank's funding a deal on their own and they borrow from you, to, you borrow from a bank $2 million, a bank has to put in, depending on their structure, $200,000 to $400,000 in equity into that deal. 
Okay. And that's why you see this leverage ratio issues from the bank that the bank has to have capital and balance sheet. So, you know, I think, you know, as the as as emerging groups think about growing their businesses, you know, start thinking about okay, it how has my relationship been with my bank? And when it's been amazing, like they you go to them, they provide you all the capital, it's not going to be as good. And if it's been arduous recently, it's only going to get worse. So I think you need to start thinking about and saying, okay, how do I uh, look at these things in a forward looking and say, okay, I can process that today. And that's very meaningful, especially if you're merging businesses. We're starting to do a lot of uh, business mergers, uh, whereas you know two, three location groups are coming together, guys get along really well, and they want to form a bigger DSO themselves and kind of you know, streamline processes. And they might go through that process and go to market themselves in three to five years to a private equity directly and get a, a, a direct financial investment, or they might go through a strategic DSO. So if you're doing those things, you absolutely are refinancing your debt structure, restructuring your capital structure as you're merging businesses into one, because you don't want to be violating your loan covenants because you've merged business assets without the consent of the bank. And we ask for the consent of the bank, they're going to say, well, we got to redo the loan. And when you read the loan, you go back to the pricing issue. If you get back to the pricing issue, why would you not go for a guidance facility? Great, uh, great point to put a bow on it there. And you know, the other thing too, uh, when we talk about guidance facilities and and this whole process, I, it's really worth noting that this is not a couple of week process. I mean, it's you know on the on the short run probably three to four months, and on the long run six to nine months. So depending on the business, depending on the uh, potential banks, uh, depending on uh, a lot of the financial performance and the existing loan structures of, of the business, it could take a while to, to get this done. The reason, the overriding, the overarching reason that you, you really want to consider this is based on that period of time, whatever outcome comes from it, probably going to be six to nine months down the road. And starting the process early uh, to really be prepared for when the market turns in your favor is, is the right way to go about this. So uh, we're going to be spending more time this month talking through things like covenant structures, a lot more considerations around banking. There's going to be more information to come, but this is probably this whole Debt recapitalization and growth facility conversation is is something that uh, I feel like I'm having with probably one out of every two existing clients and about one out of every three prospective clients. So it's absolutely the right time to to be considering this because we're very optimistic about um, the continued consolidation and the opportunistic point in time for the clients that we predominantly serve, and that's the emerging market space. Put another way, if you're an emerging market, doctor-founded, debt-funded, and you're growing, uh, especially through acquisition, you're going to have a lot of opportunities at hand in the coming months and quarters. Make sure that you have dry powder and the ability to execute on your growth plan, and that's fundamental to having your banking structure straight. DeWalker, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. I know our audience is better for it. We appreciate it, and we'll have you back on the next episode, probably to talk covenant structures too. All right, my friend? All right. Thanks for having me, guys. You got it. You got it. All right. Everybody stick around. I'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. Once again, thanks, everybody, for joining us on the show today. And sincere thanks to my partner, DeWalker Sinha. He is always 
a tour de force of information, especially around the world of uh, banking valuation and and how to uh, employ the right strategy when it comes to really using debt funds to grow your business. And obviously, that is our target audience. So uh, I I know you got a lot out of that. I actually got a lot out of that just listening to him and and some of that I didn't even know. So we all learned something together. Before we wrap up today's show, uh, I wanted to let everybody know about a new hire that uh, we have at Polaris. Her name is Rachel Addison. And Rachel comes to us um, from uh, the world of insurance predominantly, and she is going to be serving as the role of operations strategist here at uh, Polaris. Um, You may be asking yourselves, Uh, What is an operations strategist? And I would tell you, it's probably something that many of you wish you had in your business. Some have already started the process of bringing one on. Think of it as a Swiss army knife, (laughs) somebody that probably spans across uh, all of your departments, uh, can be the glue that holds a lot of the business together, takes some of the friction out of the work um, uh, that we all experience, uh, and is a a little bit of a a process-driven jack-of-all-trades, if you will. Uh, Rachel has served in that role for several different companies through the early stages of her career. And we are really excited about having her joining the Polaris team. I think this will be something that, believe it or not, impacts uh, a lot of our client work and and maybe not from an analytical standpoint, but from the look and touch and feel aesthetic, uh, the customer experience, so to speak. We want her to play a role in that. Uh, We want her to help uh, like I say, kind of span the different departments and and help us better to integrate uh, the fast growing teams that we have here at Polaris. And, you know, she brings to uh, our world uh, employee, uh, the, the 10th employee with DeWalker and myself being 11 and 12. And we have some more who will be coming on board in, in fairly short order too. So our business continues to grow by leaps and bounds. And, and really the uh, viability of it is not just the value proposition of the marketplace, but our ability to execute it with great employees uh, and team members. And Rachel, we think will be absolutely one. So for those of us, or for those of you who are going to be joining us uh, either at upcoming conferences or certainly here in Charlotte. I think you'll get the opportunity to to meet Rachel uh, hopefully sometime soon. And speaking of meeting people, I have spent three of the last four weeks on the road, uh, two uh, different trips out and back to Phoenix uh, and one to Boston uh, for a number of trade shows, Voices of Dentistry, a a DSI event, and then um, the uh, Yankee conference last week in Boston. And I've got to be in Nashville this week for the Dents Plus Arona national sales meeting. And I just want to extend my sincere gratitude and thanks to so many of you who attended those uh, trade shows and um, came up to, to visit, chat with me, chat with some of the other teammates who are with me and the nice compliments that you've uh, shared about our work the podcast, some of the client level work, some of our master classes. Uh, we touched a lot of different people and um, and a lot of different engagements, obviously, over that period of time. And and really, the the compliments that you shared were were great to hear and and very heartfelt. And I just want to say thanks um, because our work is hard. Sometimes our relationships are pretty intense, uh, and it's really nice to know that people value the work that you do. And um, just stopping by, even to, to extend some gratitude, was um, uh, was was really uh, worth the trip for me, especially being away from family that that much, that often, and that long is is not easy for me. Uh, so y'all made it kind of worth the while for that. So, and that won't be 
the the last event for a while either. We have some other uh, conferences coming up. I'll give you some heads up on that. And the uh, upcoming shows are going to be things that you want to pay attention to out in the marketplace. And I look forward to seeing more of you out there. Uh, once again, I appreciate you sharing the podcast with your peers, with colleagues, with people you think need some business education. I look at our downloads about on a weekly basis, and it is a KPI that we do monitor. Uh, and I think the um, the hard work that we're doing for the podcast and our other um, content-driven uh, strategy is really starting to pay off. So thank you for that. If you're a subscriber to the podcast and you're not a subscriber to our news feed, I would encourage you to go on our website and, and become a subscriber to the news feed. The podcast is great, but when you get it off of TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, Google Play, whatever else, um, you miss part of the news feed, which is that we are writing a blog every week now on a different type of content than what you hear on the, the podcast. And we are uh, releasing a short form video uh, either off of our YouTube channel or off of the website, once again, that is different from the podcast. So if you like the subject matter and the granular nature of the podcast, I think you'll get an equal amount in written format on the blog uh, and even more on uh, video. But you have to be a subscriber of the news feed um, to, uh, uh, to access that. So please go on the website, sign up for the news feed, and you will get all the Polaris information and then some. Everybody, thanks so much for being in the audience. Appreciate you being a, a listener and a subscriber, and we'll see you on the next episode.